the Business and Leadership Podcast with Jared Graybeal. Hey guys, welcome back to the Business and Leadership Podcast. This is your host, Jared Graybeal. And on today's episode, I have Chris Neeland, the founder and CEO of Colt Collective. Uh, Colt is one of North America's premier engagement marketing firms, and they help companies embrace proven marketing principles that Chris discovered while working with some of the most iconic cult-like brands on the planet. He co-founded Colt in 2010, and he's since worked with companies such as Harley-Davidson, Zappos, Best Buy, and Keurig. Uh, prior to founding Colt, he actually worked with companies such as John Deere and Home Depot. So it's safe to say Chris has a ton of experience and background in the marketing industry, and that's probably what we're going to learn a ton about. Thanks for being on the show today, Chris. How are you? I'm excellent, Jared. Appreciate you having me on. Absolutely, man. Really excited to dive into this. Um, it's been a minute since we've been able to have sort of a, a high-level marketing conversation, especially with some of these big brands. Um, so I'm excited to learn a little bit. But before we dive in to some information about those brands, um, what's your short story, right? Like, how did you get to where you are today if you were to wrap it up in maybe two, three minutes? Well, I think uh, my career, at least, um, has three real chapters to it. First chapter was what I thought was going to be my life. I uh, always kind of assumed I was going to be some VP at a Fortune 500 marketing department I, that was my father was that I kind of grew up around that I went to school, uh, got my master's degree with that intention joined the biggest best brand that would hire me, uh, which was John Deere at the time and then went to uh, Home Depot afterwards so kind of uh, the first decade was sort of pursuing this corporate marketing dream. Um, I, I didn't, I actually didn't mind the work, um, loved the organizations, but uh, didn't love the culture. I realized I was really more, I remember very vividly being at Home Depot and being the client, you could make your agencies, you know, jump through all sorts of hoops and they would always fly to us. And I'd always just say, no, no, you stay there. I'm going to come to you. Because uh, I just enjoyed the agency culture more. I enjoyed the creativity. I uh, a lot of corporations, I think, have, uh, they, they, they waste a lot of calories worrying about things that don't really matter and, and trying to force uh, square pegs into round holes. And so I took this leap of faith and jumped uh, agency side. Some people would say I sold my soul and uh, went uh, agency side, moved to Texas and uh, joined a large uh, Omnicom holding company. And uh, it, it was a much better cultural fit. Um, I think what I realized working at a large agency was that once an agency goes public, they almost by default have to worry more about their business than their client's business. I had a lot of integrity problems. I, I found it very difficult to go into clients and sell things that the agency needed sold or that uh, they had utilization issues that we'd go into meetings where they'd say, this department is not being billable enough. So go sell that stuff. And I didn't like that. I always thought that in the, in the spirit of servicing a client, you're supposed to put their needs ahead of your own. Um, but I did like the agency side. So the third chapter was, could I join a smaller, uh, an independent agency, a non-public organization that could do, uh, make a bigger, longer term bets. They weren't run by accountants. So you could make a decisions that were good for your business, but also good for your client's business. And that's uh, been the, the suit that I've been wearing for the past 11 years and have loved that one the best. I, I find that it is 
uh, both uh, professionally stimulating and personally rewarding to be able to go into organizations and add some uh, value uh, in a way that is legitimate and it's going to uh, have tangible uh, you know, results for them. I agree. And I love that. And I'm super interested to learn, you know, what practically does Colt do when you work with companies that we mentioned like Zappos or Harley Davidson or GoDaddy, right? So let's say Zappos reaches out, Harley Davidson reaches out. Actually, let's stay with Zappos because if anybody's read Delivering Happiness, you would assume that they have a high level, really efficient, healthy culture, right? And so when I read that, it was like, well, what did Zappos really need um, from Cult Collective? So let's talk about them. Like, what do you do when you come in and you work with a company like them? Well, in Zappos, it's happened a few times. Uh, Zappos is probably the first time I vividly remember showing up questioning, are we going to be able to add any value here? I mean, we've, we've written a book on cult brands and there's a whole section dedicated to Zappos. So it was like, um, you know, but I mean, candidly, our very first client when we launched in 2010 was Harley Davidson. And uh, they kind of exposed us to, there's, there's kind of a few buckets of clients. There, there are cult brands currently, Harley Davidson and Zappos would fit into that category. But just because you've achieved that status doesn't mean you stay there. And so in, in both of those cases, they were worried that they were starting to slip, that they were starting to lose some of their relevance. And it happens. As you know, Ogilvy, David Ogilvy used to say, how big can you get before you get bad? And businesses that are uh, self-aware enough will realize, uh, you know, maybe we've lost our edge that was certainly the case with Zappos. I mean, Zappos was such an early adopter of not just delivering wow kind of service, but the idea of same day shipping, free uh, return shipping. Uh, and that kind of, that was game changing for the direct to consumer e-commerce space until it wasn't, until everybody offered yeah. free shipping, until everybody just copied uh, Zappos. Zappos had also been acquired by Amazon right before they called out and they were quite worried about what that might mean. Uh, for some of their specialness and some of their uniqueness. So there's there's a category of client that would say, we know we're special, keep us there. It's the same reason why Serena Williams has a tennis coach or yeah. Tom Brady yeah. has a, a personal trainer. It's like, yeah, I'm not there to make you awesome. I'm there to keep you awesome. There's a, there's a whole other bucket of people that would say we're not awesome, but we'd like to be. Uh, and those are also really rewarding, but those ones are also sort of gut checks and you've been in the fitness space i believe jared and there's a lot of people that would love to lose 30 pounds a lot of people that would love to be able to bench press 300 pounds but do they are they willing to put the work in are they willing to do what is required and you know just as i, I like to say most americans are walking around either overweight or obese it's not because they don't know how to lose weight it's because it's hard yeah. uh, most companies can say they want to be a cult brand but they they don't really they're not willing to do what is actually required uh, to pull it off. And then there's a third bucket of clients that we love, which is they tend to be very skeptical and or um, they just believe that they're that doesn't apply to them, that they're just not cult capable, that their category is somehow excluded. Um, and uh, we love to have a, a do a bit of an assessment to determine is that true? Is that category actually not capable of having hyper levels of customer engagement or does the leadership team just lack the courage or the creativity to uh to transcend their space and to do something awesome i always like to put like usaa on the table like if if life in auto insurance companies can achieve cult-like status the way usaa has for the u.s military clients then i think 
most businesses could achieve it if they just have put the work in. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes uh, you got to play a lot of catch up, but it's extremely important if you want to build an enduring brand. Um, so one of the things I read about prior to the interview was the cult brand principles, which is, I think, something that you attempt to apply in all these companies that you work with. Yeah. Um, what are those principles? Yeah, so kind of the genesis of that was when we were starting Colt, we were reading uh, Jim Collins' Good to Great. And he basically just benchmarked businesses that had above average financial performance as measured by stock price increases, and then tried to reverse engineer what are the commonalities of those businesses that are uh, homogeneous within them, but then heterogeneous without, meaning that all the people that had great stock prices tended to do these things and the people that didn't tended not to do those. And, and you wanted to try to find those, those differentiators. So we just did that exact same thing. We just changed the metric. So we weren't using financial uh, prices determined by your stock. We were using a level of what we call brand attachment or audience uh, uh, engagement or brand affinity. You kind of pick your, your poison there. But it, it deals with people's attitudes, feelings, and beliefs about brands. And of course, the brands that people are crazy about, the Apples, the Teslas, the Starbucks of the world, have exceptional financial performance. But we like to think that's, a, uh, that's an outcome of their affinity for the brand versus people sometimes get it backwards. They're going to go chase financial performance. That's going to make them loved. And that's not the case. You, you right. become successful because you're loved, not the other way around. So we found eight things that were homogeneous within and heterogeneous without um, some of them surprised us. So an example of one of them was this idea of building from the inside out and the emphasis that cult brands placed on culture and uh, becoming a great place to work. And that's really interesting to us because very few marketers view that as part of their job description. They kind of punt that to human resources <laughs> or to uh, operations. And so we're like, well, if, if Internal engagement is a key indicator of external uh, engagement. Why aren't more marketers spending time sourcing talent, grooming culture, you know, uh, using their skills on internal buy-in and doctrinization? So that was an example of where we could just now go into companies and say what percentage of the marketing budget, the marketing team, the CMO's time is being spent on internal engagement activities. And if it's you know, less than 20 30%, then we'd say, well, that's a low-hanging fruit right there shift your focus, shift some of your attention. Another one's called co-create. It's a really fascinating one because for decades, really since mass media became popularized in the 50s, marketers thought that their job was to talk really well. They spent time with their ad agencies. They spent a lot of time on messages and media and telling storytelling. And the reality is cult brands are actually better listeners than they are talkers. In fact, some cult brands like Lululemon or Costco, they don't even advertise. They're not even talking. <laughs> They're just listening and responding to you know, those types of customer issues and complaints and opportunities. So we like to say sometimes the best cult brands have learned how to shut up and listen. Um, and then we don't have time to go through all eight of them, but another uh, one that I think sometimes people really uh, get uh, excited about is this idea of picking a fight. And um, cult brands just about every business can be pretty good at talking about what they stand for, why they exist. But cult brands have learned how to perfect what they're fighting against. And they, they've identified a villain 
And sometimes that villain is, you know, uh, something bad. Like I'm, I'm looking here at my Swell water bottle. Swell is a great cult brand. And their villain is the plastic water bottle. Like a, the reason why the corporation exists is to help eradicate the world from pl- the, the, the pollution that results from plastic water bottles. So that makes people pay an extra $20 instead of a knockoff that they can get cheaper at Target because they also care about the planet or the environment. And it becomes a badge. It becomes a symbol. Um, in other cases, it's more playful. The you know, Matt, you know, the Burger King, what Burger King does to McDonald's, or what uh, um, you know, I'm a Mac, you're a PC. Those are just little jabs that kind of say, I'm not only here to define me, I'm here to put you in a box and to pigeonhole you and to make the you know whatever that villain is seem less desirable. That's awesome. And if people wanted to learn more about the, you said eight brand principles, where would they find that information? You can go to uh, our website, cultideas.com. We, we post something daily about how those principles are manifest, as well as we've got a book uh, that's called Fix, um, How to Cure uh, Customer Engagement. Uh, that's on Amazon, or you can get that off of our website. That's great. I browsed through the, uh, through the website and um, came across a white paper that I really liked called Getting Emotional is the Most Rational Thing a Marketer Can Do. And I love that because it's sort of an oxymoron, emotional and rationality. Um, so can you can you give me your thoughts behind that? I'd love for you to elaborate on that. Yeah, it's it's one of the things, first of all, where most businesses get it wrong is in the way that they survey or conduct customer research. They ask people very rational questions, not realizing that over 70% of all of our decisions are made emotionally and then rationalized after the fact. And you can see that play out in homes whenever somebody, whenever a husband comes home with a new Porsche. <laughs> there is no rational reason to buy a Porsche. Yeah. Right? You buy it because you want it emotionally. And then you try to explain to your wife why that $100,000 purchase made sense, right? And we do that with yogurt. We do that with jeans. We do that with switching our utility bills. Like most things, and, and, and where the, who's most delusional in this is B2B marketers. B2B marketers think that they're the exception that they're just dealing with procurement, that it's just about price. And many, many pieces of research have come out saying that there's dozens of variables, most of which are emotional, that go into buying decisions. I don't care if you're buying a corporate copier or a piece of software. And so we've got to accept the fact that, A, that's true. There's a wonderful book out called How Customers Think that uh, I'd encourage your listeners to read if they just don't believe me. Uh, but you've got to placate to the emotional, which also means you have to measure emotion. And um, I, I like to think of the best kind of customer research, what we call audience engagement scoring, is kind of like a high school aptitude, career aptitude test. If you remember back in high school, maybe in college, they would give you these aptitude tests and they didn't say, do you want to be an astronaut? Yes, no. Do you want to be a garbage man? Yes, no. Do you want to be a cook? Yes, no. They didn't just give you a list of jobs and ask you if that was interesting to you or not. They'd get into how do you like to problem solve? How do you, uh, are you like a morning person or a night person? How social are you? Introverted, extroverted? How, uh, how much, what's your competence and proficiency with numbers versus language? And based on those data variables, they then say, you might be a great professor. You might be a race car, you know, whatever it might be. And so that's what we have to do with proper customer research is you don't just ask your customers, do you like this? You know, were the bathrooms clean? Was the store brightly lit? You want to start asking them about their attitudes, feelings, and beliefs, 
because cult brands don't just represent something functional. Like I mentioned with Swell, right? It's a badge. People walk around with a half-empty thing of Starbucks for hours as a badge. People want to tuck their pants into the, their shirt into their 501 so that people can see the Levi's as a badge. And um, that, that's what we are trying to help people, uh, brands, elevate, or we call it transcend from just rational things. I've got this. It's on sale. Come buy it to much more about here's what we represent. We, one of the other cult brand principles is people care more about what you stand for than what you sell. And, and, and the best example of that is Airbnb. When Airbnb goes to market, they're not really talking about get this room for $150 a night, right? They're, they're out there talking about a world in which everybody should belong. And you know, they're yanking their properties out of Washington, D.C. after capital riots not because that's good for business in the short term. It's not. They just lost millions of dollars of revenue. Yeah. But you know, shortly after that, they IPO for uh, something like 25 times earning, 20, 25 times revenue. I mean, so like what's marketing really trying to do? Fill the night that weekend or get a stock price that's worth 25x your actual value of your company? Yeah. So I, I think the biggest theme I got from that was – um, emotion and rationality are both important, but emotion precedes rationality. If you want to have a, a successful or relevant brand. Um, That's right. I think, I think a good way that we sometimes say it is that rational can result in good business, but emotional is going to result in a good brand and building a brand is going to give you a good business plus a good right. business and something else. I love that. Uh, Chris, how do brands, need to spend less money on paid media and markdowns um, and instead rise up to do what you call real marketing by providing better product service and customer experience. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I think one of the most dis so so we I used to be at an ad agency, right? And I've used ad agencies my whole career. I don't have any problem. Well, that's not true. I actually have several problems with ad agencies, but I'm not anti-advertising. Um, I just think that we've gotten we use in the book, the reason why we call book fix is the metaphor of getting a fix, like a hit or, or a high with a drug, go get your fix. Advertising is a stimulant designed to mask a problem. And just like taking pain pills, pain pills make the pain go away. They don't make the problem go away. So if you tear your ACL, you might take some Oxycontin for a few weeks until you can get surgery, but you need to go get surgery to get your knee fixed. And too many organizations never get the surgery because the pain goes away temporarily. So they start taking more and more of it. And pretty soon they're addicted to Oxycontin. And the problem is that you can become, you have to start taking more and more pain medicine to get the equivalent high. And eventually you overdose and you die. And that's why we see more and more businesses going out of business faster than any other time in history. So it's, just, it's about the degree. And I think that most marketers or most marketing departments are really just markdowners and they're markdowning departments. Their job is to advertise sales week in and week out. Remember we were doing a project with Old Navy and I think Old Navy was on sale 42 weeks out of the year and most of the time at 50% off or more. Like, where do you go from that? Pretty soon you're going to start saying, come in and we'll give you $20. Like yeah. you, you just have devalued everything. Like I always tell people you're an idiot to ever shop at Bed Bath & Beyond and pay full price because they will literally mail you a 40% off coupon to your mailbox or your inbox twice a week. So it's like, if that's your world, you're not really building a brand. You're just administering discounts. And most advertising is discount centric 
Mm. And most, and we've seen an increase in paid media go from 130 billion in 2010 to nearly 300 billion by 2023. So it's like, what the hell's going on? We are doubling the amount of money that we're pumping into the advertising channels at the same time, more businesses are going out of business faster than ever. Consumers are less loyal to brands than they've ever been. Cult brands are becoming endangered species in terms of people finding businesses that they care so much about that they'll inconvenience themselves or pay extra for the privilege of interacting with that brand. So we just like to kind of grab people by the coat collar and say, what the hell are we doing here, guys? We're distracted. Yeah. And I get it. It's sexy. It's easy. It's a... Uh, it's you know it, it's just like a pain medicine. It, it's like why not? It, it's fun to be on the Super Bowl. It's fun to you know, have your ads all over Facebook. But we have to check our egos and start doing what's right for the business. So you're saying that brands should, of course, there's still a place for paid advertising, but brands should maybe reallocate some of that time and money, if not a lot of that time and money, to focusing on their actual product, their actual design, their actual branding, their actual services, or their their customer experiences and they should reinvest money into those things versus just the race to the top when it comes to spending on advertising, right? So the best quote I've ever heard on this, Jared, was a guy named Robert Stevens from Geek Squad. And Geek Squad is a very quirky, special company that was eventually acquired by Best Buy. He built Geek Squad with zero paid media. And he said that advertising is a tax that brands pay for being unremarkable. So you've got to spend some money. You have to decide, am I going to spend that money creating something that's so irresistibly awesome that it has merit in and of itself and doesn't require a lot of advertising? Or am I going to create something that's so mediocre that the only way people are going to consume it is if I'm constantly in their face about it and constantly bribing them to try it with severe discounts and price promotion? So we try to say, why, what, where did the people go that used to make products awesome? Because they're not in the marketing department much anymore. Marketing department has kind of become the advertising department, the discounting department, the commercial buying you know, department. And so uh, we're trying to say we've almost lost a skill set or a discipline in society where who's sitting around and trying to make the customer experience, the products, the services as irresistible as possible. Can you say that quote again? Advertising is a tax brand. Advertising is a tax that brands pay for being unremarkable. So um, I, I definitely get that. But I guess to me, it seems a little unfair, right? Because as a consultant, and you have to take it within context, of course. But as a, you know, on my end, as a business consultant, one of the things, you know, when I work with companies that come up with a good product is like, now you've built this special thing, we have to tell the world about it. And then that's where paid advertising comes in. And unless you spend money to be in the atmosphere, like people, yeah, word of mouth still exists. If you, you start with a small market of friends and family, they're gonna tell people too. But these days, creating virality with a new product or a service, you gotta be on some type of media and sometimes you gotta pay the piper. Do you need to spend, do you need to be in the Super Bowl? Maybe not. But I think you probably need to spend some money to get out into the world. Uh, would you not agree, or do you think if, a, if there's a great product, it just it just sells itself? Uh, I absolutely agree, and that's why it's not binary. It's about swinging pendulums from one extreme to the other. Now, if you're Elon Musk, Tesla's doing pretty well without any paid advertising. 
right? And so yep. you find other ways to get earned media. You bake a lot of uh, remarkability into the product. You pick a fight against the established, you know, automotive industry. And so it's not as necessary. Um, I also think that there's something about growth. And, and you, know, you mentioned virility. I actually think, you know, by true definition, virility isn't about paid media. It is about word of mouth. It is about one person who's had a positive experience deciding to tell somebody else about it. You mentioned the Super Bowl commercial. I'd argue just by any brand that can afford a Super Bowl commercial is already so well known. They don't need that Super Bowl commercial. Like, why is Coca Cola and Budweiser on the Super Bowl? Right? They're doing it because they're contributing to culture. They're doing it because it's part of the uh, the buzz generation of their brand. But nobody was like, "Oh, I never even considered Bud Light." Yeah, you could, you did. You knew Bud Light existed before you had to watch the Super Bowl commercial with it. Um, so yeah, so I, we're not saying don't spend any money on paid advertising, but there is something that you said that's really insightful. It has to do with how far, how fast. And some of the most beloved brands, I think of a Patagonia, I think of Burt's Bees lip balm. They, like, they're very comfortable with organic, normal, natural growth. Usually it's when you have an investor or you have Wall Street that's trying to create inorganic natural growth, that they want to throw so much artificial sweetener or so much fertilizer into the mix to make things grow faster than normal. And that's where you see things spike and die because it was not sustainable, right? And so even, even like in the early days of Airbnb, which is one of my favorite brands, like that wasn't about paid advertising, right? That was about hosts becoming guests and guests becoming hosts. And they spent more money nurturing their hosts than they did trying to let the world know that they had a place that you could stay. And I just think that they grew in a very, I mean, they were having two, 300% growth month over month, but it wasn't because of some mega media buy. It was because they, they just made sure that the host experience was so great that when I came back and I talked to another friend that was going to go to a hotel, I was like, what are you doing? Have you heard about this thing called Airbnb? So I do think that it, there's a blend for sure, but marketers would do well to say, imagine a world where you spent half as much on paid. What would you spend into the experience that would force somebody to want to tell a friend about? It? Yeah. And you mentioned something earlier that you've alluded to a couple of times. And it's something that as a millennial who has employed uh, primarily other younger millennials and then some of the Gen Z generation, when we talk about marketing, most people, at least in these generations, think of advertising. Yep. And um, it, it bothers me because as someone who went to school for marketing, uh, you, you know, marketing is, in my opinion, everything it takes to run and build the business. Um, not just social media management. That's right. And um, I couldn't say that enough. And so for the audience that might particularly be Gen Z and millennials, uh, marketing is not just spending money on Facebook, right? It's building a product that's relevant and that helps people or the world or uh, creating a service that's uh, second to none. And then of course, there's a section of marketing that includes paid advertising, such as Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and all that. Um, and you mentioned, uh, you know, building or some of the best brands are built from the inside out. And you mentioned Patagonia, Burt's Bees. So when you come in and you work with certain companies in regards to their, their company culture and their branding, how do you look at the inside and say, we need to start here? Like, what are some practical things that you do when you work with companies uh, in regards to that? 
Well, the single biggest thing is who's hiring us. So if the marketing leader, if the VP or CMO is hiring us, they tend to um, under-index on those internal issues. They tend to already have formed a hypothesis. Here's what's broken. We need more media, better social, new e-commerce site. And, and that's where I counsel my team. Don't just give them what they asked for. Give them what they should have asked for. And so we do an audit of their culture. Other times the CEO will come in and say, we're broken. We're not performing as well as we used to. Um, fix us. And those are better questions because they haven't already formulated, well, we need a better flyer. We need more commercials. We need more discounts, right? They're simply saying, you're the doctor. I've got a cough. Figure out if it's a cold, COVID, or lung cancer, right? And so we have diagnostic tools that can come in and we'll come back and we'll oftentimes tell them, your biggest challenge is not your products suck. It's you have a disengagement level with your franchisees or your frontline staff or your call center or your sales force is off script. And so we really like the much more holistic assessment because oftentimes the remedies are not found in the obvious places because that's to go back to the, the drug metaphor, right? Like if you've been addicted to the Oxycontin for so long, you've forgotten the original reason why you started taking it right? What was it about the business? What was the symptom or the pain point that was the most glaring before you kind of got distracted and just started barraging the world with, uh, you know, uh, communications and discounts. So, you know, we, yeah, we we have, we have tools that allow us to try to understand the level of buy-in. It's really not that different, frankly, from an external buy-in, but we like to say a marketer's job should be to convert employees into evangelists. And when you go into culture, Zappos is such a great example because one of the most interesting symptoms of Zappos was they had 200 call center positions every year that would typically open up and they would have over 20,000 applications for those. Like literally a waiting list, ten, you know, thousands deep of people begging for a pretty average job in terms of compensation benefits. Um, and it was like, what the hell is going on here? What, how come Zappos has, I mean, think about what you get from that in terms of the pick of the, <clears throat> the, the cream of the crop, the pick of the litter, top talent uh, begging to come in. And we've had other p- clients that they just can't convince anybody to come work there. They're having to Especially throw ridiculous. Awesome. Yeah. But, you know, signing bonuses, relocation packages, big perks, expensive uh, stock options just to please come work here. So you know, if your listeners wanted to just do a quick self-assessment right now, how healthy is their talent pipeline? How many people are aware of the company, aware of the culture, and are sending unsolicited resumes saying, I don't know when you're hiring. You know, we, we're doing a, uh, we, we were talking with my, one of my favorite cult brands of the moment right now is Yeti. And, and Yeti is just an amazing company where they're growing like gangbusters out of Austin and they're just receiving all of these applications, even though they haven't pro, you know, proactively put something out on Indeed. If you would say, I just want to be a part of what you guys are doing. That's, That's sort really of a cool. really you know, simple symptom that you can determine the health of your business almost by the strength of your pipeline. That's really good. I, I want to emphasize that. Uh, can you repeat that? Um, the strength of your pipeline is... Uh, your talent pipeline, right? The health of your business is almost directly correlated with the strength of your new candidate pipeline. How many people yeah. are lining up and begging for a job to work at your company? So you look at somebody like Chobani, right? They're just making yogurt. 
but they have such a ridiculous culture that you know MBAs are you know world the world over saying that's where I want to work, and you know, I'm sure it helps because they have a very a generous stock package that you know a lot of people making yogurt are millionaires because of the the way that they gift equity to their staff, but it's not always immediately tied to uh, you know owner equity. It's oftentimes just designed to we're a company that's on a mission. I'm aligned with your purpose. I'm inspired by your leaders. I'm a fan of your products. And the, you know, really the ultimate form of consumership is not just, I don't just want to you know, use it. I want to work there and be a part yeah. of it. That's really cool. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit to talking about um, Cult Collective you know, as a company, as a brand. Um, you guys started in 2010. So it's been 11 years now. How many people do you have on board working with you, Chris? We've got uh, 24 what we call engagement engineers. Um, the other thing I'm quite proud of that's a bit of a tangent, but it's maybe worth noting, is around 2010, in addition to trying to reimagine new ways for businesses to market, like we just asked a different question. What if businesses didn't try to get customers? What if business, businesses tried to get cult-like followers? You would do different things. You know, getting somebody to buy from you is a different playbook than getting somebody to buy into you. Uh, we didn't see enough marketers in the buy-in business. They were just in the buy, buy, buy business. Um, but the other thing that we realized in 2010 was, you know, was this coming out of, if you remember the, the kind of the great recession uh, of the housing crisis, um, the way that we work was changing and the future of work. And we were reading a lot about open talent and open sourcing. And uh, we had saw a statistic that by 2025, 50, more than 50% of Americans we're going to be self-employed. And that was such a shift. And we love big, provocative macro trends. And uh, if there was going to be a macro trend to self-employment, uh, we wanted to figure out how do we get ahead of that. So at the same time, uh, you know, we called ourselves cult. The collective part of our name referred to our, our trade network. And we really used the Hollywood model uh, as our guinea, as our muse there. So Hollywood used to, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, be huge studios. Even actors, like John Wayne would work for a studio. He couldn't just go work for anybody. And um, when that imploded, what you saw was like Imagine Entertainment now. We're quite fans like Ron Howard's production company. And it's very, very lean. It's a couple dozen people. The, the directors, the caterers, the costume designers, the actors, they're not on staff. They're just quickly assembled to produce a movie and then disassembled. And Ron Howard's competency is picking scripts and finding the money and assembling the team. And that's what we tried to do. We wanted Colt's competency to be identify businesses that have greater potential than they're living up to, diagnose how that potential can be recognized, and then assemble a team that can do it quickly and affordably. So we don't have to have... You know, uh, I mentioned at the beginning here that, you know, the idea of when you're a public agency, you're always trying to get your people utilized. So if you have an e-commerce team, you kind of start looking for e-commerce problems within all of your clients, but they may not have a problem in e-commerce. Yeah. So that's what we try to do. So we now have over a thousand agencies and 60,000 freelancers in our collective now through a tool called Communo that allows us to kind of once properly diagnosed the client can say, well, can you help me? I'm like, of course I can. Let me go get the people that are best at that to fix that problem. That's really cool. And that, that's, it is nice because when I look at businesses that continue to grow and you bring on, like you said, a full-time e-commerce team, 
if you don't have work for them, it's, it's unfulfilling, you know, this, yeah. where you're not working with people that need help in that space. And then you're still employing these people to come in nine to five or to, to sit at their computer at home from nine to five and be available. It's like, what'd you do this week? Well, nothing. I didn't have any work, still got paid though. So I'm happy about that, but you know, nothing to write home about. And so for me, that, that bothers me because it's like, I want to be building or contributing you know, at all times, uh, if not most of the time. And I'm sure a lot of people can relate. The You mentioned this earlier in the beginning of our conversation, the gathering, mm-hmm. um, which is another uh, production or... or yeah, it used to be an event. Now we call it a platform. Uh, okay. But yeah. I mean, the gathering is actually something I'm quite proud of because it, it's an example of... of uh, or. No, normal organic natural growth where it's now kind of become this Forbes top rated business conference. Uh, but it started out, with, you know, something much more humble uh, in mind, but we, we just realized early on in doing the research of cult brands and in writing the book that these stories are incredible. And why don't more people know about this? Why don't more people know about how Lululemon got to $3 billion before spending the money on paid advertising like that? That's so enviable, right? Uh, and, and yet everybody thinks that they have to spend all this money on advertising to get to $3 billion. And so we just said, listen, nobody's believing us because we're not unbiased in this. I want you to hire me and my team. And so it feels self-serving for me to be the person saying this is how the world should be you know, done. So why don't we just get the leaders themselves to tell their own stories with no, you know, you're not going to go hire the head of Red Bull. But if the head of Red Bull can come and tell you why they dropped, you know, dropped a guy out of space and why they do commercials that don't ever feature the product and why they invest in extreme sport, then maybe you can listen to that story and come back and apply it to your own business. So it started, uh, we're going into our ninth year, you know, eighth year this year, obviously with COVID, uh, we can't literally gather, which is a shame because that's part of the quirkiness of it. We get together in this 200 year old castle in the dead of the Canadian winter in the Canadian Rockies in this place called Banff. Everybody signed kind of sequestered in there for three days. It's really quite special. And, you know, it's not like when you go to a conference in Vegas or New York where you're racing to get to the club or the restaurant afterwards, like you're sort of, you know, to say you're hostage is too strong of a metaphor, but nobody leaves. Like you're just kind of there rubbing shoulders with, the heads of the best, you know, Dana White from UFC shows up and the guy that runs the NHL shows up and Tim Harris from the LA Lakers is there. And you just feel like, holy crap, these are in my mind, the Titans of the marketing world. And they're telling people things that nobody's learning about in their NBA marketing class. And I think that's a shame. So yeah, it happens every year for your listeners. What's what's nice is because it's virtual now, A, it's much cheaper and B, it's always on. So it's more like a platform the way TED would be a platform. You can go to the cultgathering.com website. You can see the previous speeches. You can log in and interact And you know when they go live streaming uh, on April 19th of this year. That's awesome. That makes me think about uh, Clubhouse, you know, this yeah. relatively new app. What do you think about Clubhouse? Yeah, Sign- we're, we're, we're watching it uh, quite closely. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's a... It's an inter. It's kind of like an interactive podcast in my mind. Like you get people together to have a conversation, but you're able to have other people chime in, and other people are able to discover it. So um, I, I think Clubhouse is showing a lot of potential, and uh, it might become an enabling platform for how virtual events get done in the future. 
yeah, I'm excited to see the future of it too. I'm, I'm not normally an early adopter, so I've jumped on and I've, I've sat through some conversations, but um, I continue to learn about it and how it can best be utilized. I'm a big, big on my time. So I want to make sure I'm using my time properly instead of just listening to strangers talk all the time, you know? Right. Um, so in your opinion, Chris, uh, kind of taking another turn to talk about general leadership and business um, topics, what do you think makes a great leader uh, of an organization or a small company, maybe two or three character traits? Well, I always, the number one word I associate with leadership is influence. I think too many people associate it with vision. And certainly I'm not saying leaders don't have to have a vision, but by definition, a leader who doesn't have influence doesn't have followers. Therefore, they're not a leader. They're just a person with an idea. Mm -hmm. So I think that we need to spend more time figuring out how to use that influence properly and how, what, what are the um, elements of persuasion what are the elements of, like there's psychology involved in leadership about how you help people overcome fear, insecurity, doubt, ego. And uh, the more I've learned about leadership, I've realized it's less about, you know, having a vision and charting the course to get there. And it's more about how do I convince all the people behind me to go on the journey? Okay. I love that. What do you think contributes most to business success? And I mean this very generally. So for example, market timing, some would argue that leadership alone is the, you know, you read books like Good to Great and they try to expel the leadership uh, idea, but they have a hard time with it. Could be teamwork, could be culture, could be the product. If you were to double down on one item and then let all the rest kind of follow, what would it be? I'd pick customer obsession. I think that the best businesses are those that best understand the customer that they're, that they're actually serving. I think bad businesses try to serve too broad of a market. Uh, and I think that the best businesses understand how to uh, truly tap into who their loyal customers are. You know, the, the idea of a thousand true fans and knowing what, that what makes them tick is uh, probably a better indicator. A close second, I do subscribe to timing. I think there's lots of good ideas that have been too early or too late. Um, so if you have that one-two punch of, uh, of, of identifying a customer need and knowing how best to service that and getting the timing right, just in terms of, you know, you look at a lot of things like, you know, uh, like even Clubhouse. You know, Clubhouse wouldn't have been possible without the predecessors of the proliferation of podcasting, the the, the mobile devices, you know, that are in your, that are in your pocket. So, you know, Clubhouse 10 years ago wouldn't be what yeah, it is no. today. And when you mention customer obsession, I just think of Jeff Bezos and Amazon. Um, someone who, you know, again, for the audience, uh, people that go to start can get real caught up and, um, you know, low hanging fruit, trying to reach for every shining demographic, you know, reaching everybody at once. And Jeff Bezos, just had one product books for a long time. Right. Um, and he, he tripled down on customer obsession, selling the most books, and then he expanded. And I think that's a great example. I mean, of course we look at Amazon now as the everything store and, um, it wasn't always that way. So it's, uh, it speaks a lot, it even speaks to me because it's fun to do a lot of different things and to be diversified, but you, you have to get really, really good at one thing. Um, I'm interested 
because I'm a fitness guy and obviously very passionate about the fitness business and the fitness industry, what would be your, if you think about fitness, what's a brand that you really admire uh, in the fitness space that you think has a cult following? Well, we're having them at the gathering next month, Peloton. Okay. I mean, what, what Peloton's been able to do in such a short period of time, largely through virility and users getting other users, they, they benefit from tremendous uh, word of mouth. Um, uh, but, you know, that's the other one that I've actually been quite enamored with is CrossFit, which is kind of on the opposite end of that spectrum, you know, doesn't involve thousands of dollars of technology, but part of CrossFit shtick is the community, is the cult followers within that gym and these strangers that, that become your motivator and become part of the appeal of why you're going to work out. It's not just to feel better, but you start to uh, bond with that group that you're associating with. But I mean, the fitness category, frankly, is just littered with cult brands, whether it's you know Nike and Under Armour on the apparel side, you know, gyms, even like Orange Theory, uh, uh, the, 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 the mutter runs the, you know, there's just, it, it's just such a wonderful blend, you know, Iron Man. It's just such a wonderful blend of, of, um, it, having high, high emotional attachments. You become, yeah. that becomes part of your lifestyle. It's an identity. I run marathons or I'm a triathlete or I'm a football player. And so, uh, those brands that excel there, uh, Gatorade we've honored in the past, it's, is they tap into the emotional resonance, not just the practical functional benefit. Yeah, comes back to that emotion, and I love that. Um, a couple more questions before we close out today, Chris. These are just sort of one-offs. Uh, what would be, if you had to recommend one book or maybe up to three books to the audience, and it could be anything, um, one of your favorites, it doesn't have to be with marketing, what would they be? Well, selfishly, I'll plug my own fix. Uh, you can get at uh, Amazon. The, the origin story of our philosophy was really Seth Godin's uh, Purple Cow, uh, where you know that's got to be 20 years old at least now. But that's where he at first identified when did marketers stop doing things that are remarkable and we just got distracted with advertising. Uh, and then, as I mentioned a few minutes earlier, I think this idea of how customers think uh, is a great book that takes complicated research practices that boils it down into things that you know a, a non-researcher statistician could understand to say, oh, wow, we're probably not doing our research the right way. What was the last product, um, say under a hundred bucks that you bought that you really enjoyed? Maybe your favorite thing that you've spent less than a hundred dollars on recently? Mm, uh, Disney Plus. Uh, so we just subscribed to that streaming service. Disney is clearly one of the all-time great cult brands. Uh, but I've uh, we we honored Marvel last year at the gathering. Got to know a bit about the uh, the philosophy that goes into that business. People don't realize that Marvel was bankrupt uh, before creating this cinematic universe that became what we know today as Marvel. I love that rags the riches story and to, yeah. to understand the bold decisions that they've made and the fact that you know disney now owns star wars pixar marvel i mean just these cult brands are just lining up back to back and it's fun to tap into them watching the new uh uh winter soldier falcon thing with my boys yeah it's good and if anybody in the audience wants to learn about the marvel pixar star wars story i think ride of a lifetime by uh robert Iger or bob Iger is a I mean, it's going to tell you everything you need to know in regards to those stories. Um, last question, Chris, if you could put anything on a big 
blank billboard over the busiest intersection you know, uh, what would it say? So that's a good question because I've been thinking about um, my elevator speech in the form of a billboard. And what I've come up with is this statement that says, if we're not careful, we'll end up becoming far less than we're capable of being. And what I like about that is this idea of we need to live with intention and we need to raise our sights and we need to realize that our potential for our career, for our companies are oftentimes much, much greater than what we settle for. And so, you know, I'm not a motivational speaker, but so whether it's Colt or The Gathering or a book, we are trying to have people dare to dream a little bit bigger because we've seen awesomeness. And I'll tell you the one thing that isn't a cult brand principle is some superhuman trait or attribute in the cult brand leader. Yes, there's an Elon Musk and Steve Jobs for every generation, but most cult brand leaders are pretty average schmucks. Most of them, you know, aren't some, you know, Menza level genius. Uh, they just have bigger desires. And because they're, they're dreaming bigger, they're achieving more. And so that's what I want people to do is live up to their capabilities. I absolutely love it. Dream bigger from Chris Neeland. Hey, man, I really appreciate you being on the show. I've gained a ton of value from this. I have a lot that I want to spend some time reflecting on and thinking on. Um, but uh, again, Chris, thanks for being on the show. How can people learn more about Colt? Yeah, I would just direct their attention to cultideas.com. They can get in touch with us there. They can understand about some of our product services. They can get the book. They can sign up for the gathering. It's a pretty good hub for all of our information. Awesome. And for the audience, I'll link that stuff into the show notes. Again, Chris, thanks for being on the show. Until next time, man, have an awesome day. Thank you, Jared. Safe travels on your journeys as well. For sure.